This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. It's a new year. How about a pay raise? That's coming for about 10 million Americans. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Baltimore, I'm Amy Scott, in for Kai Rizdahl. It is Monday, January 1st. Great to have you with us on this first day of 2024. The start of another year brings a slew of new state laws taking effect. Several states, including California, Colorado, and Michigan, have expanded gun safety rules. Restrictions on health care for transgender youth take effect in Idaho, Louisiana, and West Virginia. Illinois is banning book bans in state-funded libraries. And more than 20 states rang in the new year by raising the minimum wage. Workers in Hawaii will get a bump of $2 an hour to a minimum of $14 an hour. Maryland and New Jersey will hit or exceed $15 for the first time. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more on what these increases mean for workers. This New Year's Day, workers making the minimum wage in 22 states got a raise. And according to our analysis, that is going to increase wages for almost 10 million workers. That's Sebastian Martinez Hickey, who tracks the minimum wage at the Economic Policy Institute. He says more than half the workers getting a minimum wage hike are women. About 11 percent are black and more than a third are Hispanic. 43-year-old July Monroy makes $17 an hour, just above the minimum wage in Los Angeles, where she's a manager at McDonald's. My check is only like 800 900 every two weeks. That barely covers Monroy's rent and other bills, so she cleans houses to make extra money. Monroy is a single mom with five kids, all young adults. Her youngest son is 18 and still lives with her. Two other sons in Texas also struggle to make ends meet, making the minimum wage there. Monroy says that's $7 or like $7.25 probably. She's right. $7.25 an hour is the federal minimum wage, and Texas is one of 20 states at that rate. Monroy says her sons are also in community college, and if she has any money left at the end of the month, it goes straight to them. They live in Texas. That doesn't matter if they do like 38, 40 hours. They, they don't make it more than 500 for every two weeks. So her two sons in Texas are getting by on about $1,000 a month each. Yeah, those are the stories that just make your hair raise. That is Amy Glassmeyer, a professor of economic geography at MIT. She helped develop the living wage calculator, which estimates what workers across the country would need to earn to cover the cost of living. They load prices for things like childcare, housing, transportation, and food into the calculator, and it spits out the living wage for a particular state or city. Invariably, Glassmeyer says, The minimum wage 
in almost every location in the United States does not cover a living wage. Glassmeyer says even the highest minimum wage at $17 an hour doesn't cut it. She says a livable wage nationwide would be closer to $25 an hour. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Global demand for fossil fuels is expected to peak later this decade as the transition to cleaner energy sources picks up pace. You'd hardly know it, though, looking at the past year in the U.S. oil and gas business. This country remained the world's largest oil producer for the sixth straight year. And a wave of consolidation swept through the industry, a lot of it concentrated in the Permian Basin of West Texas and New Mexico. Marketplace's Lily Jamali reports. The Permian Basin produced nearly 6 million barrels of oil a day in 2023. That's more than Iraq, the UAE, or Kuwait, according to Peter McNally, analyst at Third Bridge. This year was another new high you know, for the Permian, and that has attracted a lot of interest. The Permian Basin has another thing going for it. It's almost like real estate. Location, location, location. Robert McNally of consulting firm Rapidan Energy says industry-friendly regulation in Texas is part of that. There's also less federal regulation when it comes to exporting the oil because it doesn't have to cross state lines. And because Permian oil tends to be exported rather than used in our own refineries, the Permian is very important because it's very close to our major export terminals. The biggest energy deal in the Permian last year took place in October when ExxonMobil bought Pioneer Natural Resources for $60 billion worth of stock. But Andrew Dittmer of Enveris Intelligence Research says there's been plenty of other FOMO fuel dealmaking in the Permian, a rush to buy assets while they're still available. Scarcity or perceived scarcity in the market is a major driver of these deals. Dittmer says about a decade ago, private equity firms piled into the Permian. They had inventory. The public companies wanted inventory. And so it was a good marriage of of needs and wants between private sellers and public buyers. But Dittmer says the deal-making may have reached a turning point last month when Occidental Petroleum bought privately held Crown Rock for around $12 billion. Shopping in the Permian, he says, is getting expensive. It does feel like we're kind of approaching a top in terms of what companies can reasonably pay for these assets and inventory in the Permian Basin. Dittmer expects natural gas to play a bigger role there. With sanctions on Russian gas exports, there's need all over the world. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Wall Street was closed for New Year's Day. Instead, some numbers looking at the year gone by. Details when we get there. Credit scores have a lot of sway in our economic lives, determining not just if you can get a loan and how much interest you'll have to pay, but sometimes even our job prospects or whether we can rent an apartment. And in New York City recently, some landlords have started reporting rent payments to credit bureaus, which for tenants can have a big effect on their credit scores and their financial fates. Cleo Chang wrote about it at Curbed. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Landlords have had the option to report this information for a long time. Why are they just doing it now? 
Yeah, so I asked some of the um, people who work in the housing and consumer advocate space, and they're um, they're saying that they're definitely seeing an increase. They've always been able to do this, but part of it is because of um, in 2019 there were stronger rent laws passed in New York um, that made tenant protection stronger, made it harder for landlords to deregulate apartments. At the same time, in 2020, we obviously had COVID, and there was an eviction moratorium in New York, so that sort of held up courts for a long time. Uh, tenants couldn't be evicted. Uh, I think in sort of response to that, they got a little desperate and were looking for new ways to basically pressure or harass tenants to make them pay their rent. Um, so this was one of the tactics that they have been picking up on and sort of, I assume, sharing among themselves and, and we're seeing more of. To talk about what this means for tenants, I wonder if you could uh, talk about Deborah, uh, a woman you spoke to, and what it has meant for her to have this information reported to the credit bureaus. Yeah, so Deborah is a tenant in a Harlem six-story building, and um, she was having trouble, as other tenants were in their building, with a lot, of, a lot of issues they had with their landlord, maintenance stuff, um, elevators weren't working. You know, she would tell me about you know, rats in the walls, uh, just some of some bad apartment conditions, basically. So her and a few uh, other tenants in the building were withholding their rent to pressure their landlord. And yeah, she said that recently, you know, this over the summer, she got an email from a, her landlord, uh, as well as other tenants did, that said that they were going to enroll them in a new program where uh, they were going to report their rent to the credit bureaus. And, you know, her, she's saying that her credit is now getting tanked. Yeah. So what does it mean for a tenant if their credit score is negatively impacted? Could it affect their ability to rent in the future? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm sure you're as you're aware of credit scores are run so much of how we live in this country. So for someone like Deborah, for other tenants in the building, you know, it affects whether they can get a loan for a car, whether they can get a mortgage. Um, but the interesting thing is that it also affects whether you can rent in a new place, right? One of the biggest things that landlords look at um, when they're deciding whether or not to rent to a tenant is their credit score. So if your credit score is affected negatively because uh, of a dispute that you're having with your current landlord and they're reporting your late rent or missed rent, even if it's for a totally legal reason, then that might affect your ability to move out of that place, get a new apartment, um, because you know landlords are going to be looking at the, your credit score. And it's sort of this like, like savvy way to basically soft blacklist tenants from uh, getting apartments. So I've been covering housing for several years and I've talked to a lot of property owners. Um, and, you know, during the pandemic, many of them felt they were unable to uh, to evict tenants who were not paying rent um, and had little recourse. So I wonder, you know, on their side, uh, if there's a reason they're turning to this this other sort of collection tool, basically a threat of hurting someone's credit score. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot easier than going to court, for sure. It's something you can do right away. Uh, I think there's a fee that they do have to pay to these agencies to report this stuff. But um, if you can sort of negatively affect your tenant's credit score immediately, you know, by reporting this, then that's a lot quicker a way of sort of getting, maybe pressuring and getting what you need then or what you want, then, you know, going through other avenues. On the flip side, 
paying the rent on time can help build credit. And some consumer advocates have been pushing uh, the credit bureaus to use this information to help people build good credit who might not otherwise have a chance to do that. Um, are landlords reporting regular payments? And, and do we see this actually helping people occasionally? Um, I I think that landlords, I mean, I, I can't speak for all of them. It really depends. I think that some of them are probably reporting uh, on-time payments. And for some people who are underbanked, like this might be one of the few ways they can build credit. But I think what's often not being said in these um, in these notices or enrolling these programs is that, you know, there's no opt-in or opt-out option for tenants if they want to do it, if they don't want to do it. And so, you know, the, the advocates I to- uh, spoke to, the lawyers I spoke to said that, you know, at the minimum, tenants should be able to choose whether or not they want their payments reported and, and it should be uh, shouldn't be an involuntary thing. All right. Well, Cleo Chang uh, wrote about this at Curbed. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Coming up. Skiing messes your life up, basically, is what Warren used to say. Looking back at a skiing legend. But first, let's do the numbers. Markets are closed today for the New Year's holiday, but 2023 was a tough year for home buyers. 30-year mortgage interest rates climbed to nearly 8% in the fall before ticking back down. The current rate is about 6.6%. Meanwhile, home prices also rose. The National Association of Realtors says the median sale price of an existing home ticked up 4% year over year to about $387,000. New Orleans ranked number one for the most expensive city for New New Year's Eve travelers. That's according to a survey from Travel Mag. The best lodging price for a three-night stay over the holiday weekend was nearly $1,200. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Amy Scott. I spent much of the past year reporting on water and what happens when there's not enough of it for our climate podcast, How We Survive. In the arid southwest, the combination of climate change, over-pumping of groundwater, and rampant growth has left many communities searching for new sources of water and battling over the resources they have, which brought me to the city of Kingman in northwestern Arizona. Kingman has an old-school vibe. Route 66 runs through the heart of downtown. Retro neon signs advertise motels and diners. We get tourists from all over the world. They come through here. It's a straight shot from Las Vegas to the Grand Canyon. Jamie Staley grew up in Kingman, a city of about 35,000 today. She runs a landscaping business with her husband and serves on the city council. I wanted to help work on issues that would create a town where my daughters could go to college and there was a lot of opportunity for them to come back. So it was a little unsettling when about 10 years ago, she started noticing changes. It really happened overnight. Farms popping up in the desert, growing thirsty crops like alfalfa and nuts in a region that sees just 5 to 10 inches of rain a year on average. Nobody would have ever imagined that farms would locate here. I mean, if you had talked about that 20 years ago, you would have been laughed out of the room. Soon, Jamie grew alarmed. 
we realized that our water from our aquifer, which is our only water source, drinking water source for our city, was being depleted at a very rapid rate. A study by the U.S. Geological Survey found that four times as much water was coming out of the aquifer as was going back in. So Jamie and other local leaders decided to pursue an unusual solution in this rural conservative area. They asked the state to pass strict regulations to protect groundwater, something that hadn't been done in Arizona in 40 years. The move set off a firestorm. We the people have a God-given right to land and the water underneath that land without regulations. The state held two public meetings last year packed with concerned citizens like James Jones, who opposed the regulations. This is government overreach and violation of your oath of office. Others, like Randy Perry, wanted the state to step in and stop big corporate farms from draining the aquifer. All we hear is drought, 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 but yet you're allowing these wells just to go goofy. you got to have some kind of controls. And last year, the state agreed to designate the Wallapai Valley Groundwater Basin as an Irrigation Non-Expansion Area, or INA, a jargony name that means farmers who are already here can keep irrigating their crops, but they can't expand and no new farms can move in. This is also the airport here, too. Rocky Dollywall is driving me northeast on Route 66 to his farm outside Kingman. Are these your little baby trees out here? Yes. Those are newly planted pistachio trees. Newly planted, I mean a year old. The desert gives way to tidy rows of pistachio trees, almost as far as the eye can see. Rocky Farms about 2,400 acres and had plans to expand and build a pistachio processing plant which, when the INA got passed there, got put on hold. We cannot do that. We are halfway in the middle of everything, and all of a sudden this got thrown into us that we cannot farm anymore. So what do you do? Do you? I imagine it's hard to sell that land if no one else can farm it. Right now, nobody wants to buy that land there. You cannot sell it. Um, so we are basically can't do anything with that land. Other landowners have sued the state of Arizona to try to reverse the rules. They claim the state's decision was based on overly dire projections that didn't take into account actual rates of groundwater withdrawal or steps farmers have taken to irrigate more efficiently. But Councilwoman Jamie Staley says the new rules don't solve the deeper problem. I think anybody that's familiar with this issue would tell you that the INA was just a first step. Because, you know, the the data shows it's not enough. Officials are working to recharge the aquifer by treating wastewater and injecting it underground. They're also investing in conservation programs to use less water in the first place. Jamie hopes all these things will preserve her rural desert town for her daughters and for generations to come. You can hear more about how communities are adapting to a hotter, drier climate on the new season of our podcast, How We Survive. When I was a kid growing up in Colorado, my family had a ritual 
At the start of every ski season, we'd file into a local theater to watch the new Warren Miller movie. If you're not familiar, Miller was a pioneer of outdoor adventure films. He spent nearly four decades producing movies about skiing, featuring daredevil tricks and plenty of spectacular falls. While Miller himself stopped making films decades ago and died in 2018, his company, Warren Miller Entertainment, has continued that legacy. The latest film, called Warren Miller's All Time, is the 74th released under his name, and it's part of a two-year celebration. Josh Haskins directed the film. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Glad to be here. All right. So for people who aren't familiar with Warren Miller, who was he? Warren Miller could be considered the godfather of action sports. Um, He basically brought the concept of ski films to a broader public audience. He was filming and producing and editing the films all himself in the early days and then taking it on the road and showing it to audiences in theaters across the country. This was in the 50s, so um, the concept was uh, very new, and there was, there was a great appetite for it. Can you talk about what these events were like? I mean, the, he went on tour with the movies. I remember seeing them every year at the beginning of ski season. Uh, describe the scene. Yeah, we like to talk about the film tour as the kickoff to winter. Um, <laughs> get the audience fired up for skiing and snowboarding. And Warren, back in the day, uh, that was his goal too. He was up on the stage doing live narration and uh, really building the brand himself. All right, so we have a, a clip from the movie, uh, All Time, that we want to play. It gives you a sense of Miller himself and his style. This is a story of people, winter people. As winter people, we have a lot in common. We lavish untold sums of money on the somewhat vague emotional feeling of turning a pair of skis on the side of a hill somewhere. Winter people only think about three things. Where we're skiing now, where we're going to ski next, or where we just finished skiing. Because we're hooked. Hooked on one of the last legal turn-ons. Hooked on skiing. (laughs) One of the last legal turn-ons. I love it. Um, what do you think this clip says about him? I mean, he, he's he's affable. He's He was part of the fun, right? Just listening to him talk about skiing. How did he pull that off? Yes. Uh, Warren is uh, it's so nostalgic to hear his voice. And I think that's what yeah. resonates most with people in this year's film is that throwback to Warren's voice itself. His writing style was very uh, comedic. It was very straightforward, and um, he really did want to make the audience laugh. Your film follows the history of skiing through the decades, starting in the 50s. Uh, Miller, I guess, made his first film in 1949. What are some of the biggest changes that you saw as you look back uh, through these years of footage? I think the biggest changes in the sport have to be definitely technology, um, ski shapes, and uh, the technology of uh, boots and all equipment. Um, 
that really has pushed the progression of the sport and allowed for people to push the limits on uh, what is possible. My favorite innovation is boot warmers. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, shaped skis are great. Snowboarding's great, but I like to not have cold feet. Um, going back to the clip we played, uh, Warren Miller acknowledges, you know, that winter people spend untold sums of money on skiing. And of course, that's only increased over time. Um, I mean, skiing has just become very difficult to afford for many of us. Uh, and I wonder, can it survive? Um, and how can more people have access to this amazing feeling of sliding down a snowy mountain? Yeah, that's a great point. We as a company, and I think the industry in general is starting to understand that we need more inclusivity to really help the sport survive. There's a few ways to go about that. We're working with organizations like Share Winter Foundation that bring people to the sport that may not uh, have the means otherwise. And hmm. some of the past products that have come out lately, Epic Pass, Icon Pass, that helps at least spread the cost per visit if you intend to ski more than, say, 20 days per year. Now, however, yeah. there's a downside to that. Uh, the amount of passes that these companies sell really create a lot more day users. So uh, longer lift lines, more problems with parking, uh, yeah. other frustrations that attribute to one of Warren's classic lines. Skiing messes your life up, basically, is what Warren used to say. <laughs> <laughs> it does mess your life up for a few beautiful seconds of feeling like you're flying. <laughs> That's right. Josh Haskins is director and producer of Warren Miller's All Time. It's out on tour now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. This final note on the way out today, to finish where we started with some of the new laws taking effect, several states will see new consumer protections. In Connecticut, online dating sites must adopt policies for reporting harassment and provide resources for safe dating and avoiding romance scams. In California, large retailers have to provide gender-neutral toy sections or face fines of up to $500. And in New Jersey, new rules require telemarketers to identify who they are, why they're calling, and how to contact their employer within the first 30 seconds of a call. The law, which passed unanimously, also bans sales calls between 9 p.m. and 8 a.m., our daily production team includes Andy Corbin, Richard Cunningham, Maria Hollenhorst, Sarah Leeson, and Sean McHenry. I'm Amy Scott. We will see you tomorrow. This is APM.